have. Well, I would invite you to turn in God's Word to the book of Titus this morning. We're just doing sort of a single focus in Titus chapter 2 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a lot of them in the seats in front of you. And in that particular copy, there's actually two different editions we have. So it's going to be either page 938 or 998, Titus chapter 2, a short but powerful uh, little letter toward the end of the New Testament, Titus chapter 2. And as you look there, I want to mention just a couple of quick things. First of all, thank you to all of you who were here yesterday helping with the workday. We know that those of you who weren't were here in spirit fully, but thank you for being here to help with the uh, facilities and property the Lord's given to us. Thanks to Patty Nevins for spearheading that as usual. And uh, thank the Lord for even a beautiful day to be able to share in those things. And um, then just a reminder that we'll be gathering again this evening at 5 p.m. to look to God's Word and to spend some extended time in prayer. And then this next week, with it being in the uh, resurrection celebration for believers, we celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day, really every moment of our lives we celebrate the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, but we will share in that unique focus next weekend. And so Friday night, we'll have a Good Friday service. And then Sunday morning, uh, we will have our regular worship service. We won't have our regular equipping hour. Uh, I think as was mentioned, it's certainly in your bulletin. Uh, but we'll have a, a share a meal together at 9 a.m. for those who can join us and then our worship service. But we encourage you to be a part of those things. I'm going to be preaching uh, both Friday evening and Sunday morning from the book of Acts. And so encourage you to be here for that time. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from today, planning to start into the book of Colossians, Paul's letter uh, to believers in the city of Colossae. And that's going to be my focus for the times that I'm preaching for uh, the foreseeable future as we'll start into the book of Colossians two weeks from today. But this morning, we're in Titus chapter 2. And as we come to this portion of God's Word, this has been on my heart and mind for a number of weeks, for a number of reasons. Uh, It's perhaps not unfamiliar to many of you. Some of you know that many years ago I preached through the book of Titus here at River City Grace and have revisited various passages here and there through the years. But as the Word of God is living and active and eternal, it is always relevant and timely for us. And so we're going to look at all of Titus chapter 2 this morning. So let's hear God's Word in Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read it and then lead us in prayer, and then we'll move into things. But hear the Word of God. Verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, 
not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer again. Our merciful and Mighty Father, please help us now not only to understand, but also to trust and obey your word. You are infinite, you are unsearchable, and you sovereignly rule over all your creation. And you have given our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to redeem and to purify us, to make us zealous for good works, to make us beautiful in your grace. So Father, please give us ears to hear what you would be saying to each one of us this morning. Please empower me to faithfully declare what you've revealed for your good purposes in Jesus, even as we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I alluded to a bit earlier in uh, leading in prayer, I don't know how this past week has been for you But for me, it has been an experience of contrasts in many different ways. On the one hand, by way of the weather, we're getting more and more tastes of spring, if you will. Some sunshine and a little bit slightly warmer temperatures after all of the rain that we've had. Uh, Generally, the last few days, a beautiful blue sky with white clouds. There's singing birds and there's uh, leaves are budding on trees and flowers are beginning to bloom. And everything seems so fresh and full of life uh, following the atmospheric deluge of these last few months. And I love this time of year. I know for some of you it's miserable because of allergies, and I'm sorry for that. But it's a, it's a wonderful time of year. It's invigorating uh, to my senses. And yet, as we know, in contrast to so much uh, that we find in nature that is indeed delightful and beautiful, uh, this past week has also brought much sadness and much overwhelming sorrow and certainly other events that, that go way beyond this last week. But of course, the shocking Christian school shooting that happened last Monday in Nashville, uh, so horrific and so tragic on so many levels. Uh, The news, as I mentioned in prayer from Haiti with this dear brother, Fasson, I've met him. He's a godly and a faithful man who was kidnapped in that country where it's really the law of the jungle. There's no real uh, significant police presence, and so it's just the law of the jungle, and and it's a tragic situation. And as far as we know, he is still being held uh, by his captors, and ransom is being demanded. Of course, politically, we've heard about the indictment of former President Trump and and what that represents not only of our own fractured political system, but of our broken and sinful world. And no doubt all of us could name numerous grief-provoking events, both public and more personal to us. 
And we understand that even though this is our Father's world, and even as the psalmist in Psalm 104 rightly praises and thanks Him for all that He has created and ultimately glorifying Him for who He is in all that He has created, we know this is a fallen world. It is a broken world. It is ungodly and it is ugly. And it brings grief and it brings sorrow. And for any who are believers, and even if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus this morning, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get weary. And particularly for Christians, it's easy to get get discouraged in living for Jesus Christ amid such a broken world that impacts every single one of us. Well, God has given his word to encourage and exhort us. And even in Titus chapter 2, this is what we find. A picture of how God's people are to pursue godly beauty even within a godless and an ugly world. And with the truths that we're going to see as we move through Titus chapter 2, we're going to see that God commands his people to display godly beauty in an ungodly and ugly world. And that's really the big idea. That's the main truth in all that we find here in chapter 2, that God commands His people to display godly beauty in an ungodly and an ugly world. God commands His people to display godly beauty in an ungodly, ugly world. Now, as we see this command unfold in chapter 2, there's really three different parts of the command as it moves along. And that's what we're going to see as we move through verses 1 to 15. These three parts of God's command for His people to display godly beauty even in an ungodly world. So here's part number one. And it is this. Follow and walk in God's beautiful design. Follow and walk in God's beautiful design. And this is what we find in verses 1 through 10 and all of the details that are found in verses 1 to 10. I want you to notice how Paul begins there in verse 1. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now the sentence begins with that adversative, but... And so he's following the thought that he has been speaking of that we find at the end of chapter 1 where he's speaking about hypocritical religious people who are not truly saved, who are not truly regenerate. He says at the end of verse, or at the end of chapter 1 in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so in contrast to those kinds of people that Paul is writing Titus about, his co-worker Titus, he's wanting Titus to exhort believers in how they are to live in a manner that accords with sound doctrine. And the intent of what he is saying is that it's not enough to have the right doctrine, it's vitally important to live a godly life that matches that doctrine. And so what he's calling for is for God's people to follow and to walk in God's beautiful design and to teach what corresponds to what is fitting and what is appropriate with sound doctrine. 
Teach Christians how to live in light of the truth is what Paul is saying. And of course, this is ultimately God saying this through the Apostle Paul. Now let me give you just a little bit of background about the context of this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, at the very beginning of the chapter, listen to what Paul says in verse 1 as he begins this letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And right from the very beginning, as he's writing his co-worker Titus, he's concerned about not only people's knowledge of the truth, but with godliness that accords to that truth. And this whole theme, this whole focus of godliness permeates the entire letter. It's another way of saying live in accordance with sound doctrine. And this matter of godliness has to do with devotion to God that issues out in a life seeking to please God. It's it's a sense of being devoted to God in a way that lives to please Him. Another way we could say it is it's active duty for God, born out of abundant delight in God. That's the sense of godliness. It's being obedient to God in light of who he is and trusting and rejoicing and delighting in him. And so from the very beginning, he's concerned about this matter of godliness. Now let me have you slip down just a little further to verse 5 and we we get a little bit more specificity about Paul's purpose in chapter 1. He says to Titus, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He has left uh, Titus, his co-worker, on this island in the Mediterranean, Crete, in order to put in order what has uh, been established. Paul had previously been there. The gospel had been preached. People had been saved. They had been gathered together in churches. But there was still a need for those churches to grow and to become healthy. And so this is why Paul has left Titus on this island of Crete, and this is why he's now writing him to remind him of what it is he wants him to, wants him to be doing. And it's interesting when he says there in verse 5, so that you may put what remained into order, it's actually a medical term that he uses. It comes from the Greek root orthao. And the only reason I mention that is because that's where we get orthodontics or orthopedics. It has to do with setting bones or setting things that are out of place into place. And so Paul is concerned for the spiritual health of believers, and he's concerned for the spiritual health of the entire church and of churches, multiple churches there on the island of Crete. And so this is why he's writing to promote spiritual health. Now, by way of the structure then of this letter, in chapter 1, he really focuses on the need for godly leadership in the church. That's what he addresses in chapter 1 as he talks about elders and the character qualifications of men that God would raise up to share in the leading and the shepherding of his people. He's concerned for godly leadership in the church. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he talks more about the need for godly lifestyles among God's people, among the saints. And so that's really the structure of the letter, revolving around this matter of a, of a burden for godliness, a burden for, burden for bringing spiritual health. He addresses leadership in chapter 1. He addresses uh, Christian lifestyles in chapters 2 and 3. 
Now, with what he says then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he gets very specific, doesn't he? He talks about older men and older women and younger men and younger women. He, he gives some specific instructions and exhortations to Titus himself, and he has some specific things to say about those who are enslaved at that point in time. And by way of implication and application, there's no doubt things we can draw out from there about those in employment situations. But the point is, is that he gets very, very specific about the character and the conduct and the relationships of God's people. Now, in the focus of things that we're doing this morning, we don't, of course, have time to get into all of the details of all that he says to every individual. Uh, When I went through this many years ago here, we spent a lot of time taking our time going through all of these things. You can find uh, those sermons online or explore for yourself. But suffice to say that there is very specific, very detailed, clear expectations that God has for all of his people, whatever life situation we're in. Whether we're a man or whether we're a woman, whether we are young, whether we are old, whether we are married, whether we are unmarried, whether we have children or don't have children or whatever it may be, there are specific expectations that God has designed for how he wants us to live, how he wants us to be godly, how he wants us to reflect his design in this fallen world. And again, he gets very, very specific there. And he wants there to be goodness and he wants there to be beauty that comes out of our lives consistent with his design that reflects his goodness and his wisdom and his authority. Now, of course, in many, many other places of Scripture, we learn much more about God's design for how we are to live. The things that Paul says here in chapter 2 are not exhaustive, but they do represent God's good design and specific details of how it is he wants us to live. And even in the life of a, of a church, of a healthy church, all of the implications of, of what all of these things mean and how they come to bear in our lives and how they play out, those are things that we, uh, we work out with one another. We pray for one another, encourage one another, confront one another from time to time, uh, come alongside one another and help each other grow in following and walking in God's beautiful design within our particular lives. And I want to just make another point related to this regarding following and walking in God's beautiful design. Uh, Theologians talk about two different ways of understanding God's will that we see in Scripture. And there's other nuances to, to how we can understand this. But one way of thinking about it is to understand a distinction between God's preceptive will and his, his providential will. His preceptive will has to do with his precepts, those things he has made clear, those commands that are clear and explicit and specific that he calls us to obey out of faith in him. And these matters of his preceptive will apply to all believers in all stages and ages of life. Of course, they apply differently depending on on, on realities of our life, but there are clear commands that God gives of his preceptive will, and that's what we find here in Titus chapter 2. However, hand in hand with his preceptive will is the reality of God's providential will. 
That has to do with the providential realities that he has ordained in our life circumstances at any given point in time. And within his providential will, we don't always know, we we never really know what he's doing. He's God, we're not, we're to trust him. And often our circumstances may be other than what we might desire, and yet God's purposes for us are to learn to trust his providential guiding and leading in our circumstances, even as we strive to obey his preceptive will. And one way or the other in all of it, whatever our current situation, even today, he calls us to trust and to obey him, to follow and walk in his beautiful design. And so even with the specifics that he speaks of there, uh, those are matters to be taken to heart. Some of you know, because I had it here yesterday, uh, I got a new griddle for my birthday back in December. My wife and my kids got me this really cool propane outdoor griddle. It's like a three foot by two foot thing. It's very big and we cooked pancakes on it yesterday morning. It was a lot of fun. It was very tasty. Uh, But that came in a box. It was all disassembled and it came in a box and I had to assemble it. Well, in order to assemble it properly, what did I have to do? I had to follow the directions. Because there were designers of that griddle. There were people who who planned and put together that griddle. And so they left instructions for how to put it together so it would function properly. Now that's a simple and an obvious illustration. But it does illustrate the fact that, that in all kinds of things in life, we normally are inclined to look at the instructions. So that something will work in a manner that's in accordance with how it was designed. Friends, the same is true in our own lives. God is the master creator. He is the maker of all of us. He has designed us male and female in his image. And he knows best how we are to function for his glory and for our joy and for our blessing. And so the first aspect of God's command to uh, display his beautiful godliness And godly beauty is that we follow and walk in his beautiful design. That we follow and walk in his beautiful design. And I would just ask you, even this morning in your own life right now, as a man or as a woman, whether you're young, whether you're old, whatever your circumstances may be, even in hearing the things that we've heard here in Titus 2 and maybe being drawn to think of other places in Scripture where specific commandments are given, are there specific adjustments even now that God would have you make in your life to follow His design more closely? Are you striving to know and and obey His preceptive will even within the providential circumstances that He's given to you? God commands his people to display godly beauty in an ungodly and ugly world. And are there adjustments that he would have you to make in your own life, even today, to be more in line with his design? Well, that leads us to think about what is it that should motivate and empower us to follow and to walk in God's beautiful design? What should be at the core of our motivation to do this? Especially when it is hard and especially when it is painful to do so. What is it that should motivate us? Well, this leads to the second part of God's command. And this is what we find in verses 11 to 14. And that is part two, that we trust and we learn from God's beautiful grace. 
that we trust and we learn from God's beautiful grace. Now it's interesting, in verses 11 to 14, this is just packed with with inexhaustible, life-giving, theological truth with all that Paul says in these verses. As I shared, the, the thrust and the focus of Paul in this letter is really much more practical. He's concerned about practical daily living among Christians. And so it's not a dense theological, doctrinal exposition like, say, the book of Romans or some of Paul's other letters. But nonetheless, there are a few places, and verses 11 to 14 here are one of the places where there's just this this dense, rich theological truth. And as Paul begins verse 11 by saying, for, he's introducing the reason, he's introducing the cause of why it is believers should be motivated to follow and to uh, walk in God's beautiful design. It's because we are to trust and to learn of his beautiful grace. Now, as he speaks of God's grace here in verses 11 to 12, I want you to notice there are three different um, time frames of God's grace. First of all, what he says in verses 11 and 12 has to do with God's present grace, if you will. His present grace. So look at what he says, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See how he's focusing on, on the present realities, the present implications of the fact that the grace of God has appeared. And Paul there is speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God had appeared in many ways, of course, in God's dealing in Old Testament times, but it appears most fully in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the entire Old Testament was pointing to and anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says the grace of God, his undeserved favor to sinners, it has appeared and he has brought salvation for all people. And, he, and he's, he's implying all people who believe. And what does this grace do in the present? He says, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be trusted and is to be learned from as the means by which we grow in godliness. And the essence of the fight of growing in godliness is learning what it is we must renounce of ungodliness and worldly passions, what it is, as Paul says elsewhere in other letters, we are to put off, and also what it is we are to put on, how it is we are to live with being self-controlled and upright and living godly lives in the present age. Paul's saying it's all within the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God that has appeared, that is presently training us how to do this. That little term of training us, it really has to do with the picture of a parent training a child. And any parent 
who has trained or is in the midst of training a child knows and understands it is a long-term process, right? It's not like they turn six years old and you have a training lesson and boom, that's it. They're set. They're done. They've got it. No, of course, that's absolutely foolish. It is a lifelong, ongoing process. And so it is for Christians as God, in His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, parents us and trains us and mentors us to grow in godliness. So we must trust and learn from God's beautiful grace in its, in its presence act, present activity as through His Word and through His Spirit and through His people, even in the local church. It all serves to help us learn what it is we must renounce and put off of ungodliness and worldly passions and what it is we are to live to and put on by way of being self-controlled and upright and godly. So this grace has a present reality. But then notice it also has a future reality. Verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What a glorious reality that we do have a blessed hope, a happy and a satisfying and a real hope that the Lord Jesus who once appeared has now been crucified, He's risen from the dead, He's ascended to heaven, and He is coming again. And this is uppermost in Paul's heart and mind, and it should always be uppermost in every believer. Whatever is presently going on in our lives, whatever is presently going on in the world, this is the blessed hope that we have to anticipate. That the Lord Jesus is coming again. And we wait for this blessed hope. We don't sit in a corner and do nothing as we wait. We pursue God and we pursue godliness. We want to follow and walk in His good design. But we do so with the anticipation that we're eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. And so that's the future grace that we have to look forward to. It's to be like a, a beacon, continually uh, the floodlight that we're always looking at, the, the lighthouse, if you will, in the storms of this life. We're always looking at Christ and at His coming return. So we have present grace, we have future grace, and then in verse 14 we can call this past grace, which certainly has present and future implications, but Paul makes reference to the past. So look at verse 14. Who, he's referring to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He's making reference to the finished work of Christ on the cross. He Himself once and for all to redeem people to 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 purchase us out of the slavery of our bondage to lawlessness and to purify for Himself, zealous, passionate for good works. He's talking about the past grace of God manifest in the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. And I would say, friend, if you're here this morning and you've never genuinely trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, never recognized your own guilt before Him, your own unrighteousness, your own inability to deliver yourself from lawlessness, from rebellion against God, and recognized your accountability to His judgment, friend, Jesus and only Jesus is the one who can redeem you. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one in whom and through whom 
You can know forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God and become an inheritor of all of God's blessings in Him and have life in Him and live a life of meaning in knowing Him. If you've never come to faith in Christ, don't let today end before you would cry out to Him and know Him as your great God and Savior whom you desperately need and whom He so abundantly offers of Himself to you. But you see, Paul is talking about the motivating, fueling impact of God's grace in Christ, His beautiful grace. And he wants believers to continually trust and to learn from God's beautiful grace as the motivating realities, both past, present, and future, of why we are to pursue godliness. Part of the implication of this is that every single one of us who are believers, we are stewards of God's grace in this world. If we have been saved by His grace, we now become stewards of His grace, and this is why how we follow His design is so essential. I want you to notice a little bit earlier in chapter 2 that everything that Paul is saying to believers about how we're to live, it has an evangelistic, missional impact. Notice in verse 5, as he's given instructions to older women and to younger women, at the end of verse 5, he says that all of this is to be happening. Why? So that the Word of God may not be reviled. And then at the end of verse 8, as he's given some specific exhortations to Titus in the character and conduct of his ministry, why is Titus to be attentive to this? He says at the end of verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then at the end of verse 10, as he's given uh, instructions and exhortations to slaves and how they're to, to relate to their masters in a godly fashion and do what they're called to do, He says at the end of verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Beloved, whatever situation God has provided, we are to display godly beauty as a testimony to the world of His grace. And in our displaying it, that we would also be declaring, that we would be speaking, that we would be proclaiming that very same grace. And we need this encouragement, don't we? We need it because living a godly life in an ungodly world is a very hard, very difficult, very painful reality. Because the world isn't embracing. (laughs) The world isn't eager to say, oh yes, we love you, please tell us how wrong we are. No, they hate the light. And it's only by God's grace that anyone who's outside of Christ comes to faith in Christ. It's hard, it's scary, it's intimidating, it's difficult, it's humanly impossible, and so we need to be built up and strengthened in God's grace. So many examples of believers who have taken stands and who have paid for it. One that I'm aware of, you may be as well, last summer in July of last year, there was a woman's uh, professional soccer player named Jaylene Daniels. Uh, She was a Christian, and she declined to wear a rainbow-themed jersey when her team celebrated Pride Night during a home game. And she was skewered in the media. She was skewered publicly, uh, and she didn't play in the game, and she was strongly condemned as being, of course, homophobic and intolerant and filled with hate. 
And then I had read that even this last October, she was cut by the team that she played for, and who knows whether or not that was connected. Most likely it was. And I don't know much about her, but she was striving to honor the Lord. And she paid a price for it. And there is often a very real price to pay if we're going to live a godly life. So we need to be secure. We need to be strengthened. We need to be assured in the grace of God in Christ and all of the past, present, and future implications of His grace. And so He calls His people to display godly beauty in an ungodly, ugly world. And so I would ask, again, just another question of application in your own life, in your own circumstances even now. Are you trusting and learning from God's beautiful grace in Christ? Are there any situations that you may presently be facing or could anticipate facing in the future in which taking a godly stance might cost you? Might cost you something relative to your family, to your job, at school, or maybe you're on a sports team even as uh, this woman was, whatever it may be. Are you looking to God and His grace and trusting His help to be godly even in an ungodly world? Well, we might ask, what else perhaps should motivate us to follow and walk in God's beautiful design, uh, trusting and learning from His beautiful grace? Well, there's one other reality that Paul mentions that is another motivating factor, and this is part number three of the command to display His godly beauty. It's this, that we are to submit to God's beautiful authority. We are to submit to God's beautiful authority. Now, this has been sort of implicit in everything that Paul has already said, but notice how he ends this portion of things with Titus, verse 15. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you, Titus. Now, he's giving a specific command to Titus, his co-worker, and, and he's there as a representative of Paul, ultimately under the authority of God. And yet it's clear that this is all pointing back to God and to his good and beautiful authority. So in other words, everything that he's saying here, these are not suggestions, these are not options, these are not, hey, if you get around to it or feel like it kinds of things. These are commandments, and they're good commandments. They're life-giving commandments. They're beautiful commandments because they come from the good, beautiful, life-giving God. And His authority is designed, the very nature of God's authority is life-giving. It's rebellion that brings death. It's rebellion that brings judgment. It's rebellion that brings condemnation. And so he says, Titus, declare these things. Talk about these things. Speak about these things. He says, exhort and rebuke. To, to exhort is to, to point in the right direction. To rebuke is to expose when somebody's going the wrong direction. And both are expressions of love. Both are expressions of care and compassion. He says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And so again, friends, these are not divine suggestions or ideas. These are divine commands. And what it means is to not follow and walk in God's beautiful design, to not trust and learn from God's beautiful grace, is fundamentally disobedience. It's sin. 
And it's a failure to please and honor God. And you see, God is the one who defines His own authority, His own reality. He defines the way things really are. Regardless of the godlessness and ugliness that rebels against His design in countless different ways, it doesn't change reality. Because God is unchanging. Now anybody, of course, can reject God's commands. Anybody can disobey God's commands. Anybody can just say the whole Bible is nothing but a bunch of myths and ideas and nice little religious stories. Anybody can do that, but it doesn't change the reality of who God is and who, is re- who He has revealed Himself to be in general ways through nature, through all that He's created, and in specific ways in His Word, and particularly in the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when you leave here today, you can decide that you're just not going to obey any traffic laws. You're going to ignore the stoplights, you're going to ignore the lines, you're going to ignore speed limits, just all of that. Well, that's fine, you can do that, but you still are accountable for the consequences that that brings, both for yourself and for others. And you see, the same is true with regard to God and His commands. You can justify and you can deceive yourself and deceive others that it's okay to obey God and you don't have to take Him seriously. But friend, you'll reap what you sow. And it may be soon or it may be later, but God is not mocked. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 6, you will reap what you sow. And what's amazing and what's interesting is the more we know God, we more, the more we know of His of His holiness of his righteousness of his glory and splendor and majesty and goodness and love and purity the more we see that his commands are good and his commands come from his love they come from his goodness and the more we obey born of faith the more we rejoice in him and trust him and know his comfort and his care and so friends we are called as God's people those who believe in him for those who do We are called to pursue, we're called to follow and walk in His beautiful design. We're called to trust and to learn from His beautiful grace. And we're called to submit to His beautiful authority. Humbly, joyfully, and confidently so. And so again, I would just ask, even within all of this, are there specific, even present ways that you need to be trusting and obeying God? Are there specific ways, perhaps, that you've been disobeying Him that you need to confess and repent from? And maybe even come to another brother or sister and say, hey, I need, I need help. Would you help me? Would you help me move in a better way in these areas? That's what the body of Christ is for. That's how we love one another, because we all can battle these things. You see, every day, all day, We must always trust and obey. That's what the Lord calls us to. And in so doing, we live a godly life, a beautiful godly life in the midst of an ungodly and an ugly world. And so he calls and he commands us to follow and walk in his design, to trust and to learn from his grace and to submit to his beautiful authority so that he might be glorified and so that others would come to know forgiveness and life and true blessed hope in Christ. 
And so may God help us to continue to pursue these things as his people, as his people. Amen.